one of the hardest things was having to wake up each morning and think, what am I going to self-propel today to try and keep this business moving forward? Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast brought to you by JVM, a search firm that places executives and future leaders into high growth startups and scale ups. This week, we're back for another episode of our early stage founder feature series, where we dig into some of the challenges of starting a business and hear firsthand from some of the brilliant entrepreneurs that have been on that journey. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. Hannah Russell is co-founder of Mags Creative, a multi-award-winning independent podcast company who we have had the great pleasure of partnering with for 40 Minute Mentor. Co-founders and sisters Hannah and Faith have built something so unique with Max Creative. They've created an amazing team, culture and brand that is rightfully seen as the best in the business. Having had so much support from the Max team over the years, I was so excited to have Hannah on the other side of the microphone today and find out more about her journey, the ups and downs of being a founder, her experience of starting, growing and exiting her first business, and how she's created and scaled mags, and all the potential benefits that come from podcasting, something that we know a little bit about. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the next 40 minutes with the fantastic Hannah Russell. Hannah, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. I'm very excited to have you here. We've known each other for a little while now, worked together, You've interviewed me a few times on various things, so this is very exciting to turn the tables and have you on the podcast. Welcome. How are you? Thank you, James. I am very happy to be here. I feel a little bit nervous that the tables have been turned and the power is all in your hands, but I think you're quite a kind person, so we'll go with it. Oh, this is where I do my evil mwahaha laugh and then ask really (laughs) horrible questions, but I, I couldn't do that to you. You're way too nice. But we are going to ask our typical quickfire questions to get started and warm you up. And some people do find these hard, so prepare yourself. Please finish these sentences after me. My first job was... My first job was working in a coffee caravan, coffees and toasties, actually, at a lake in Surrey in the summer. So it was very, very, very hot and very sweaty. And I gave my friends a lot of free toasties. Please don't come after me. (laughs) Love that. That reminds me of, I've only been to Wimbledon once on the day I got my degree results. And it was so expensive that I couldn't really I was like, I, can't, I can buy one beer and I've got a nurse for like six hours. <laughs> and then I bumped into my mate who was running the Pim's tent. And oh. yeah, suffice to say, I had a very good day. It was great. Fun. Well, if you ever need a toasty at a lake in Virginia water, then you know who to hit up for some free toasties. I know who to hit up. And I love a toasty. The biggest mistake I ever made was? God, such a big question. I think the biggest mistake I've made in business is thinking that I was going after a very shiny version of success. So like looking at other people's shiny and thinking that's what I was I was heading for. Um, and I think we can get into it a bit, but I just think that's a complete load of rubbish. It's, it's all a facade. So true. Okay, we'll dive into that one a little bit later. But I definitely have felt like that at times. It's very easy to though, I think, because there's all the, the glamour, the glitz, the unicorn stuff. And then it's easy to kind of get a bit carried away with trying to go for that. And then I think sometimes that comes with age and probably mistakes, which we'll also get into. Before I started my business, I wish I knew. 
I think I wish I knew that you would never say, oh, I'm here, I've made it. Like, oh, it's done, like tip. Because I think I'm always working towards a goal. And when you start a business, you think, oh, if I just get to the point where we can employ one person, like, oh my God, I've done it, I've made it. And then if I can just get to the point where I have, you know, whatever milestone in revenue, I've done, I've made it. But it's, you literally, you've never reached the destination. So I think knowing that before you start would save you quite a lot of, um, I guess, missed or a misalignment in terms of like what you think you're doing. It's not about getting to one place. That is so, so true. And do you celebrate success? Are you good at that? Badly. Yeah, I got into this place of just doing one thing and then, okay, on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. And never really stopping to take a step back and going, oh, wow, that's actually really cool. And actually, it was our company retreat, like last weekend. That actually was one of the first times in a long time I'd step back and go, wow. Because you've got everyone together, having a lot of fun. You know, and you look around, you're like, wow, this is a fantastic group of people. And it was actually my wife who was just kind of waxing miracle about the team. And she's seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of JBM over 10 years. And it was just like, wow, but I haven't done that for so long. And I feel like you're the same. Yeah, just the constant striving for like the next thing. And that's not always brilliant. It's interesting and it keeps things exciting. And it means there's a lot of growth and new experiences and new projects and new challenges. But I think it means you never really consolidate. Like you never really like look at what you've done and where you've come from and where you are and say, Jesus, if this was me four years ago and I knew that this was going to be the future, I would have been buzzing. And now I'm like, yeah, this is just the reality. This is just where we are. Oh no, that's something we both, I think, can work on. And any founder listening should probably not follow suit because it's a, it's a bit of a dangerous rabbit hole to get into. The hardest part of being a founder is... Remembering that I chose and choose this life. I think I have a tendency to, in tough times, think that some like external crazy force is forcing me to do this quite hard thing. But actually, like we choose it. We chose this. We chose it and we're lucky to be able to choose it. And I think when times get hard, that acknowledgement for me is very empowering. And it means that I think, okay, if I don't want to do it, I don't have to. No one's forcing me to. I cannot do this, but I'm still choosing to do it. So I think that coming back to that and remembering that is a really hard thing to do because it's much easier to blame someone else or to blame some external forces than to take accountability for the fact that we are choosing this life. So true. Uh, and that is a brilliant way of looking at it. And it's very easy to kind of, as you say, blame others or, you know, oh, it's this, that, the other. But actually, you also have, you have the choice and you have the opportunity when things are going around to turn it around. It's, you know, I always find I'm, I'm the master of my destiny. So that kind of, when it is not going so well, that's when I need that little kick up the ass to say, okay, but you kind of, you've got out of these situations before, kind of go again, you, you can do it. It's a really, really good way of looking at it. Finally, Hannah, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV? So that could be failure, a setback that you've learned a lot from that we wouldn't obviously know about. Well, probably the most iconic first failure in my life would be when I failed my driving test the first time around. I had promised all my friends we were going to go for this weekend in Brighton. I was one of the first to take my test. Everyone had their bags packed. I just had to drive from the driving test center to pick everyone up. And I failed because in all of my driving previously, I'd been very rash. So like true to form, 
I would pull out a little bit too quickly in front of a roundabout. I would go a little bit too fast. And so my dad's advice was like, Hannah, just take it really slow. Take it slow. You're not going to fail for being too slow a driver. And what did I fail for? <laughs> Cheers, Dad. <laughs> too slow a driver. So I failed for hesitating on a roundabout for about like probably 15 minutes and just completely lost my absolute shit when I failed because I just couldn't believe that I'd made all these big plans. It was a given. It was done. And then I had to call my mates up and say, Soz, we're not going to Brighton. Or if we are, we're getting the train. And I don't know what the big learning is other than just to not think that something's in the bag, not take things for granted and to not hesitate too much. I love your confidence. Like You do hear a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, when I pass, like I'm passing my driving test in this month. And I'm like, oh, God, yeah, it's not always as easy. I failed my first go and, yeah, mortifying. But actually, they always say the best drivers fail at least once, right? Well, this is what I tell myself. I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, the best drivers probably don't throw a massive tantrum when you fail, though. <laughs> it's not a good look. Yeah, fair. Oh, wow. We've, we've grown. We've all come a long way since those failures. Thank you, Hannah. Yeah, a very good one. A first for the podcast. So well done. We are going to dive into your story and obviously talk about Max Creative. But before then, I wanted to chat about your first business because you are a serial entrepreneur. Your previous business was called Layer Home. So can you tell us a bit about what the business was and kind of what interested you in entrepreneurship in the first place? So Layer Home was a marketplace for quite high-end second-hand furniture. So it might have been a mid-century sideboard or a Swedish antique set of drawers. And it was some really incredible, beautiful pieces of furniture. And we set the business up after my mum has always been interested in interiors. She's always going to different furniture markets. So Ardingly and Kempton, and we've grown up around that. We spent a lot of time at those markets with her. And it kind of seemed crazy that there was no online equivalent at the time. So I had just come off the back of working in a tech startup in Berlin. And it was all about, you know, bringing the offline experience online. And I'd learned a lot about just building businesses online. It was a totally different vertical, but it was that world. I'd sort of really been in the kind of startup world in Berlin. And so we started dabbling with a marketplace business. And it was really, I mean, dabbling was the first word. We were like, holding this thing together with pieces of sticky tape. So it was a WordPress website with a WooCommerce plugin. It was all, you know, it was not built to scale. It was like, how was the cheapest, most effective, affordable way to, to trial a marketplace? And we got there and we started building this really cool brand. We had lots of influencers and interior designers that we worked with. We made some really cool content. We built quite a really decent kind of community around the business. We had a really engaged newsletter audience. But it was really hard because you're essentially selling very, very high ticket items once to one buyer and there's only one of them. And that was the whole thing. You know, they're they're one off pieces. It's not like a sofa where, yes, you might need to work really hard to find that buyer, but you can make that same item multiple times. Like once this beautiful Danish sideboard was gone, it was gone and you needed to find the next buyer for the next thing. And that required money and investment into digital marketing. We'd bootstrapped the business to where it was. We'd got my uncle, who was a coder, to kind of pack together this marketplace website. My sister and I, my business partner, had sort of done all the content stuff. My mom had been really involved in signing up traders. So, you know, we were really like 
going for it, but it, we were essentially pushing the wrong boulder up the wrong hill with the wrong tools. So we just, we didn't have the capacity or the ability to, to just as we were to turn that business into a success. And we needed to raise some capital and to kind of invest that into digital marketing. And there was this whole question mark around how, you know, how do scale is how this business works, you know, scale, you're making relatively small commissions per sale. You need to find lots and lots of people and sell lots of lots of things to make a marketplace model like that work. And so we ended up selling the business to one of our competitors, a business who had scaled, who had built a really kind of solid tech platform, who had gone out and raised capital. We'd done something completely different and focused on community and brand and people and influencers. And that's what they bought us for. They bought us for that kind of piece of the business. And it was such a good learning experience. It was two and a half years of probably the hardest graft I've ever done. I call myself a bit of a grafter anyway, but I think that two and a half year period was pretty exceptional because, you know, we just did everything ourselves. But it was a very, very, very interesting baptism of fire into the world of starting a business. I mean, what an incredible first experience of entrepreneurship. And we have loads of marketplace clients and I know how complex that business model is and how challenging it is and how competitive the space is. So I mean it's I mean huge kudos to you for the success you had, but I also get like the grind. Being a founder is hard enough. Being a first-time founder at a relatively young age is even harder. So what did you find the most difficult part of that experience? And were there any kind of surprising parts of being a founder that you weren't prepared for? I think when we think about founders, we often think about the hustle and the grind. And we think about it being so busy in a like overwhelming sense. There's just so much to do. I think what I struggled with was that we were having to make stuff happen. Like no one really wanted a piece of us in those days, you know, like there was tumbleweed. There were lots and lots of days of tumbleweed. And so it was like this really digging deep of we're busy and we're grinding and we're working hard. And all of those things, like those phrases, I really, you know, they repel me, but that's what we were doing. We were working very, very hard, but it was all self-propelled. And I think I had sort of thought, well, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to have loads to do. It's going to be clear, you know, there'll be a demand. It'll be clear what the need is. And I'll just have to like work really hard to reply to people or to, you know, service those needs. But actually, I think that one of the hardest things was having to wake up each morning and think, what am I going to self-propel today to try and keep this business moving forward? Because there wasn't an immediate huge rush of demand. It was all about like that digging deep and thinking, I need to turn this into something that it isn't naturally. So I think the tumbleweed probably is one of the biggest surprising things for me about starting a business. But it also says a lot about why you are a successful entrepreneur and founder, because you have that inner resilience. Because I guess a lot of people I know have kind of dabbled in entrepreneurship and they just like, I'm going to be a unicorn. I'm going to raise shitloads of capital. I'm going to just like be on Dragon's Den and all that sort of stuff. And then when the the quick success doesn't happen, which is in most cases it's like demoralizing and, and people give up. Like, I guess most startups fail pretty rapidly. So it definitely is kind of a trait of yours. And I guess a lot of the successful founders we have in this podcast of being able to kind of grit it out and have that kind of self-belief in what you're doing, even though it can be at times soul-destroying and really hard to kind of jump out of bed and, and, and keep doing it over and over again. I guess we all make lots of mistakes. I'm 10 years into JVM. I'm still making mistakes regularly. Are there any particular 
you know, shockers that you might have had when you were building there that sticks in your mind today or any other particular like, really important learnings from that experience because this feature series is all about early stage founders and I think there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that we want to make sure we hopefully don't make the same mistakes that we did. A couple, loads, millions, hundreds, thousands. I think not realizing that a large part of the business that we were building was a logistics business. So it's really shiny. Interiors is wonderful. You've got lots of like beautiful homes. We worked with lots of nice designers, but we had to sell a piece of furniture and that was very expensive and quite fragile and then get it from the person selling it to the person buying it. And that is so hard to get that right at scale. And so you know, we just, when we were business planning, we completely brushed over the logistics. Like, oh, we know this guy. He kind of does the deliveries for mum's stuff. Like, we'll just call him. He'll just, he'll go and get it. He'll drop it off. Like, no, that is not how it works. That is not how it works at scale. It worked, you know, for the first couple of months. and But then when you're, you know, selling something in Plymouth and someone's buying it in Edinburgh and pricing and accounting for risk and insurance and the really like, unshiny side of business that I think, you know, you really need to think through. And yeah, naivety, I completely hold my hands up to just thinking, yeah, well, we're just going to sell stuff and then we're just going to get it from there to there. And it's this, I think anything is possible positivity mindset that lots of entrepreneurs have. But the reality is you do need to think those things through and think about the, you know, beyond the shiny, what is the, what is the core business that you're building? And a lot of what we were building was like, needed to be a large-scale marketplace and also a logistics business. And that was part of the offer that, that we were offering. And I guess that kind of feeds in to my one of my other learnings, which was around like just looking at the shiny stuff from other people. It was a very kind of insta-perfect phase of, of life. And just thinking that everyone else was smashing it, you kind of looked at businesses on Instagram and on, you know, the way they presented themselves. And yeah, just comparing the reality of the day-to-day of early stage business with someone else's shiny, perfect representation of that, I think is very dangerous. So you ended up selling to a competitor in 2017, as you mentioned, which is an incredible achievement, especially for your first business. You alluded to a bit to why you did it, but was that an easy decision? It'd be good to understand that because I think Sometimes we hit, we see founders like plugging away, plugging away to like get to that exit and it never really comes. So can you tell us a bit about how that exit came about? And then like now that you went through that, what then made you decide to jump back in the founder saddle again? It'd be good just to hear a bit more about that, that part of the story. The company that bought us was a company called Vinteria and they'd actually started almost to the day at the same time as us. And we'd just taken two very different paths, two different strategies, which again is a learning in itself. You can be running the same business and you can approach it so differently, which I find very, very interesting. So I'd known the founder for a long time. We'd come across one another. We were, you know, friendly competitors, very friendly competitors. It was like, it was all good. And we sort of started talking about an exit or we started talking about a partnership and then we started talking about an exit. And I think it was very clear to Faith and I that if we were to remain independent, we had to go out and raise capital. To scale this business, we needed money. We needed money behind the logistics. We needed money behind the digital marketing. There was only so far that content marketing and brand building could take us before we just needed to like really spend some money on growth. And so when this conversation came about, it felt without a shadow of a doubt like the right thing to do. I think I said, and I always say this phrase, Pete, is boring, but 
you know, we were pushing wrong boulder, wrong hill, wrong tools. And so it was, it was a big relief to think that we didn't have to do that anymore. So the exit was, you know, not for a life changing amount of money. It was a polite exit, I think is the phrase, but really was a hundred percent the right decision for us. And I think my mum said to me one day, like, you know, in the midst of the slog, you know, you don't have to do this. Like, yeah, you don't have to if you don't want to. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, okay. And I think that's when the sort of window of opportunity of, okay, well, maybe this is the right thing to do. And maybe we do take this this route out because maybe we're not the right people to scale this business. Or maybe, you know, we don't currently have the right tools to scale this business or to make this into something sustainable. So yeah, it was a pretty easy decision and absolutely the right one for us. And I look back at that and think we wouldn't be where we are today with the business that we have now, which feels like, you know, exactly the right place with the right tools and the right timing and lots of fortuitousness if we hadn't have gone through that experience first. So true. And well done, mum. Sometimes you just need your parents to come in and just kind of cut through the noise and just bring... But what does it say about us, James, that we need our mums to give us permission, (laughs) you know? Like, I needed my mum to say to me, you don't need to do it anymore. It's so true. But then again, your dad did make you fail your (laughs) crime test, so, you know, (laughs) pros and cons. (laughs) No, it's so true. But, you know, that's what parents are for. I hope Sienna, so my six-year-old, I really hope she will come to me and I will be able to say something and she'll actually listen. I think it's, it's something nice about the fact that your mum said that. And, you know, a lot of us with our parents, like especially me when I was younger, I was like, oh, God, no, don't give me advice. Like, just go away. But now, I don't know, there's something about growing older and becoming a parent yourself that sometimes it's just like, well, actually, I just need to hear that. But I also, I think what I really find interesting about what you just said is also the fact that you were friendly with your competition who ultimately acquired you, I think is a really interesting and important lesson because... So, so many of our founders can be very like, not talk to your competitor, like hide everything that you're doing, be really, really hyper suspicious of, you know, those you're coming up against. There's actually often it's collaboration and, you know, mutual respect and partnership can be incredibly valuable. And, and Nick, it clearly worked out in your, your case. And the recruitment industry is terrible for that historically. And I've noticed that change in recent times too. And you see acquisitions taking place or you see partnerships or co-brand this stuff happening and it's really refreshing because i think it is hard like founder life is difficult so don't make it harder by making enemies or not talking to anybody i think there's a lot to be said for being open to talking to your competition i think there are so few examples where actually you know you're developing such a high level new tech or ip that there are obviously cases where you're not going to tell your competitor like what your big new for us podcast project is going to be or what we're going to place a bet on, you know, like there are obviously for me elements where you think, okay, well, there's a line, but there are so few times I think where having, you know, a friendly conversation with someone doesn't actually end up in giving you probably a bit of perspective, maybe sparking an idea, also just a bit of camaraderie. So yes, I very much think that kind of just, viewing people as there's in most industries there's space for for more than one player and kind of having that approach and working with people rather than against them I think is a really good way to do it totally right it feels like the perfect timing for us to talk about what you went on to do and that's great mags creative who we are huge fans of we've worked with you guys for for a little while now and love what you're about and what you're building but for those that don't know 
Can you tell our audience a little bit about the business and where the idea came from and why you decided to jump on this crazy roller coaster of founder life again? Well, Faith and I started Mags Creative in 2018. So we're about four years old. And the way that we started was we're a podcast company now. We're one of the leading podcast companies in the UK, but we didn't start as a podcast company. So we took a lot of what we had done with Lay at Home, which was content marketing, community building, executing stuff across different marketing channels. And we started tinkering. So I took a bit of a longer break after the sale of Lay at Home and Faith, being Faith, jumped straight back into work and acquired the clients and just some people that were like, hey, we saw what you did with that. You know, can you do that for us? And so we built up a very small roster of clients. And then a couple of months in, both Faith and I had personally discovered podcasts. So we'd both been, I think, relatively burnt out by Lay at Home, whether or not we recognized that at the time. It was a lot of time on screens. It was a lot of time on Instagram. It was a lot of time on newsletters. And so discovering podcasts was this breath of complete fresh air. And we just both became obsessed. So we then started kind of keeping our ears and our eyes open to creating podcast content. And the first podcast that we created in May of 2018 was the Delicious The Ella podcast with Ella Mills. And, you know, she just put something on Instagram saying, I'm thinking about getting into podcasts. What do you guys think? Obviously, me being me, I DM'd her immediately and said, we can do this for you. And then I think within about 10 days, we were in the studio and we'd released a podcast within a couple of weeks. So, you know, that experience of just thinking, okay, here's something that we love. Here's something that is clearly building a little bit of momentum. And here's a little sign from the universe for someone that needs some help to do it. And that was the start, really, of the Mags Creative that, that we know today. And we, a couple of months in, we turned away any other type of work. It was a big decision at the time. We had some retained clients. We'd started employing people. And we said, no, you know, Mags Creative is a podcast company. That is what we do. And four years later, you know, we're one of the leading podcast companies in the UK. We make branded content for people like Meta and Google and Puffin. We make content exclusively for Spotify and for Amazon Music and lots and lots of other types of work all within the world of podcasts. And on Saturday, we won the um, Best Network at the British Podcast Awards. So, you know, we've scaled some heights in the last four years in the world of podcasts. And I think that decision to focus on something that was both very, very personally exciting and invigorating. But also the timing was right. You know, 2018 was just the sort of nascent podcast industry. And we have been lucky enough as a business to really ride that wave. Yeah. And look, you really are right at the forefront of this evolution, revolution, whatever you want to call it. I'm a huge fan of podcasts. I feel so lucky to be working with you and the team because you just know your stuff and you're so passionate about it. And it's just a real joy to see the business go from strength to strength and kind of be a little part of that journey. So massive congrats on the award and uh, all you've achieved. And I think, again, it just sort of shows, it says so much about you and Faith and just how you sort of jumped on the opportunity to build upon something. And that passion really shines through and and your work ethic. And uh, it doesn't surprise me you've had the success that you've had. Let's put it that way. I think you have obviously done this before. So what are you doing differently what are the biggest differences now you're going again in a totally different industry, albeit with some probably some transferable stuff there? How has this experience been different so far? And what have been your biggest learnings from a leadership perspective or just from like a business building perspective? I think the biggest difference has definitely been timing and the right fit. So I think that 
Faith and I worked incredibly hard for two and a half years on Lay at Home. And we work incredibly hard on Mags Creative. But the difference is the conditions, I think, you know, like I think there's always got to be, you know, execution and a really good idea and a good sense of the market. But if you're doing that at the wrong time, it isn't going to succeed. And so I think we have benefited from, you know, lots of industry market forces kind of coalescing to mean that we have been able to grow as a business as the market has grown. And that's been really evident just in the last couple of years, especially where I think post-pandemic or sort of in the second half of the pandemic, it's just felt like the, the shift to audio, particularly for brands, has just been so astronomic that we have a bigger business because more people are doing business in this space. So that's been really gratifying. And then in terms of what I've learned as a leader, I think we're at a stage where we're not really a startup anymore. You know, we're four years old. We've been doing what we do for four years. We're pretty good. We're one of the best. We've won a couple of awards. So I think we're at a stage now, we've been through the startup phase with both Leia and with Mags. And I feel now that we're entering completely new territory for me and for Faith as leaders, which is, you know, the real going from a startup to an established business stage and retaining that excitement and that integrity and that kind of excellence at what we do, but doing it for more people whilst employing more people and trying to, I guess, tackle that challenge as a new one. Yeah. Totally. And one thing that we share in common is that that we're both bootstrap businesses and you've done that two times over now. And they're often, you know, a lot of the guests that come on this podcast have raised a lot of VC money and I guess have decided down a, a different path. So there is often that option for, for founders. And it's something I've wrestled with at times over the years and I'm very comfortable with my decision now, albeit there's, there's some pressure that comes with a different type of pressure. What has been the reason behind making that call to kind of self-fund? And what for you kind of the for anyone kind of in this phase right now weighing up whether to go down that route or to raise, like what for you are the biggest kind of pros and cons of making that decision? We live in a world where a lot of the narrative around business success is about raising capital. And I think for lots of businesses, having raised capital is necessary. So if you are tackling a huge problem, if you are building out a big product before you can get that product market fit. There are lots of cases, and I would never suggest that investment is not the right route for lots of businesses. But I think what I've come to realize is that I had a chip on my shoulder for a long time during layer, thinking a successful business has to have raised money. That's it. It doesn't need to have made money. The success marker is that I've convinced people to give me a million quid or 500,000 grand or whatever your seed fund or your Series A is. That means I've made it. And I think it's taken a long time to kind of shake that feeling and that chip. But what I think now is that actually, it's hugely impressive to build a business by making money, by effectively making more money than you spend. It's not new. It's very old fashioned. It's probably the original way that things were done. But we've just got to shift the narrative a little bit, I think. So there are lots of cases, as I say, where raising investment is the right thing for a business. There are also lots of cases where I think raising capital can ruin a perfectly good business model because the expectations and the growth trajectory is so ambitious that actually perhaps there's not the market space for that or you know it forces you to make decisions that aren't right for you as a founder and a business owner so as you might be able to tell James I feel quite passionately it's a bit of my soapbox story about just saying like assess your options you don't have to go out and raise capital maybe you want to and maybe that's the part for you but actually there's lots of value in not 
It's so true. And I believe that you can replicate a lot of the great things VCs bring you through advisory boards, through mentors, through partnerships. There's a lot that you can do without taking that cost. I think there's lots of positives for the certain business models, but one of the downsides is that you are giving away obviously a big chunk of business, but there's also the pressure that comes with having to ultimately re- report to and have you've got somebody that is is yes giving you cash to expand, but then there's just a different pressure. And I think that works for some people, and I realised quite quickly that would not work for me. Like that would stress me out. I like to have more control. I'm probably a massive control freak. I know I am, but that's just not for everybody. So I think it's important to share that story. And I think it's something we will look to share more on this podcast because especially in the age of you know, unicorns, billion dollar valuations, and then letting go of half your business the next year, which we're seeing now, and companies that have raised hundreds of millions are folding. Like this unsustainable growth is not particularly aspirational or shouldn't be sort of heralded as like the way to go i think there's a lot to be said for profitable businesses so here's to all those bootstrap businesses out there you've obviously kind of gone out the path which is kind of probably you know harder in many ways but as you've said the awards have come the business has grown i know that you're building something very special because i get to work with you but can you tell our listeners a bit about the culture you've created amongst the team and like that aspect of it? Because that is very hard to do. I know that firsthand from my day job and also building JBM. So how have you gone about it? And what have you found the hardest parts of building the team and uh, fostering that culture? God, our team is just everything. I mean, the people that work at Nice Creative are extraordinary. We had a team away day on Tuesday last week and... We did a lot of work around, you know, what words would we use to describe the business and what are we really good at? And, you know, it was really emotional, actually, because you think, God, all of these people, these really, really smart, amazing, cool humans are coming on this journey with us and we're all in it together. And that genuinely gives me goosebumps because I think, oh, thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks for still being here. And I think it's much easier to instill culture by osmosis when you're six people than when you're 20 people. And, you know, those numbers aren't huge, but for us, those leaps are pretty seismic. And doing that while still retaining, you know, integrity and creative excellence and being very intentional about the decisions that we make and the clients that we work with and the shows that we make. And a lot of the language that we spoke about on Tuesday was about like putting people first and putting humans first. And we do that you know, with our team and with each other, but also podcasts are a people business. You know, we work with people to tell their story. We work with people within brands to tell those stories. It isn't something that is inherently repeatable. Everything has that kind of X factor of, yes, we have brilliant processes. We have amazing production plans. You know, we have all of those things, but you stick humans into the mix and it changes every single time. And so I think making sure that that stays at our core as we grow and as we are more people is just completely front of mind for me all the time because I don't want to build a business that doesn't retain that. I don't want to go to work every day somewhere that doesn't have integrity and excellence and raise people up and, you know, put our people first. So yeah, but it's not easy. No, and I know how passionate you are about it. It's something that really is at the core of what we do and what we, I guess, one of the reasons we love doing what we do for a day job is finding great talent and working with companies with incredible cultures and you know i've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of founders on this podcast that are building that but it's so difficult to do and i think once you've got that secret sauce and you are able to 
to bring those sorts of people together it's magical and I think that's why we, we love working with your team so much they are just all different and you know in terms of personality and background but just uh I think shared passion for the work you do and uh, a similar sort of, I don't know, there's an aura, there's an aura, which I think is just, uh, it's very infectious. I'll take that, James. Yeah, no, honestly, it's, it's it's very rare, actually. We really should talk a bit about podcasting specifically because this is a podcast and you helped us kind of create this podcast. It's something that's obviously very, very popular. There's going to be a lot of people, maybe founders, maybe marketers listen to this that think they're you know, want to start their own one or companies might want to. So for anyone listening, what advice do you have about like starting a podcast now? And what are the mistakes you typically see companies or people making on that kind of journey? So there's three, I guess, hygiene factors that I say when we're talking about making a podcast and it's content, it's consistency and it's longevity. So Podcasting asks a lot of people. We're in a time poor world. We're asking people to listen to say 30 to 40 minutes of an episode. Maybe you're making short form, maybe you're making longer, but essentially you're asking people to give you their attention in a world where I don't watch a whole video on Instagram or like, you know, there's very little I will give my attention to. And you have to remember that, I think, with your whole audience. So making brilliant content has to be central to every podcast strategy. And it has to be something that has a high production value, has decent guests, or if it's solo, has really well thought through content, has a clear audience and delivers to that audience. And then I think doing that consistently and over the long term are the two secondary points. So if you're going to release one episode a month, that's fine, but release one episode a month. If you're going to release two episodes a week, great, do that. But I think with any type of digital content, just building that consistent audience and knowing your audience being able to know that actually the episode comes out on a Thursday. It's in my listing schedule. We know that regular podcast listeners have seven podcast slots a week. So you want to steal one of those slots. You want to like, you know, my Wednesday listening slot is 40 minute mentor. So you want to grab one of those slots. And I think doing that then with a view to doing it over the long term is the final point. So podcasting is never going to be a quick win. You can occasionally see podcasts jump to the top of the charts quickly, very, 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 very rarely happens now. Maybe in 2018, it was a slightly different market. But depending on what your objectives are as a podcaster, you're generally looking at building something over you know, years, not weeks, months, not weeks. And so I think going into it with those three things will mean that you avoid a lot of the biggest mistakes. Hannah, what are the biggest benefits then of running a podcast, particularly now? I know things are changing. So perhaps if you can answer that and just tell us a bit about kind of what the opportunities are for anyone thinking about doing it in the weeks and months and years ahead? I think it comes down to what your objectives are. So if you're a brand, the ability to connect with an audience over a 30 to 40 minute period per episode over say, I don't know, 10 to 12 episodes is extraordinary. And to create content that aligns with your brand's messaging, the campaign that you're working on at the time, how you want to be perceived as a brand, that kind of deep connection, I think is very, very rare in a world where, as I said, we are time poor, you know, attention poor, we are essentially scrolling and flicking and moving and not engaging and concentrating. And then I think for individuals, again, the ability to kind of showcase your opinions and your thoughts. So if you're an individual and you're thinking about starting a podcast, it should be because it's a long-term part of your career plan. So, you know, you want to 
raise your voice as a thought leader within a particular sector, or you actually think that the networking opportunities that you might get by inviting certain guests onto your podcast will benefit you in other ways. So as well as always putting content at your core and thinking, how do I make a really, really brilliant show? I think a successful podcast also gets quite clear on what the objective is for the person creating it quite early on, because there's so many different ways. And James, you talked about this brilliantly at the podcast show that, you know, podcasts can be successful and can bring benefits to you as a podcaster. And so I think being clear on that early on and not just thinking, well, you know, if I'm not number one in the podcast charts, like, oh my God, I'm not going to do it. I think it's about being clear on what you're trying to achieve. That's so true. And I kind of had to get over that early doors. When you see Stephen Bartlett, Jake Humphries is like, okay, that, that could be me. And then you realize how damn difficult it is to, to actually get to those levels. But actually, the, it is the I get the warm, fuzzy feeling from the lovely messages I get from people that say, oh, I, off the back of listening to 40-minute mentor, I, I got my first ever mentor and it's really helped me change jobs. Or, you know, I heard this story which made me, you know, take the plunge and actually launch a business that I've been kind of mothballing for the last six months or, or whatever. And I think it's that stuff where you can have such an impact and it doesn't have to be millions of downloads. It can be just, or it can just be getting your authentic voice across and a really good way to cut through yeah, the competition's noise and, and really just get your customers or whatever it might be to hear what you're all about. And I think whatever it is, there's just so many different angles you can go with it. But I think it's, as you said, it's about having that it's got to be good quality, whether it's guests or, or content, uh, you've got to be consistent. And I've learned a lot of that. And thanks to you guys, actually, because, you know, we had created something off the side of a desk and, you know, with some great support. But I think honing in on some of those things has really helped us to really refine what we're doing. And it's made a real impact for us. And it's been a very, very fundamental part of our business now. It's, it, you know, as a, as a marketing channel, as a uh, a value add thing for our candidates and something that we're incredibly proud of. So I think anyone listening that's thinking about it, I think definitely listen to Hannah's advice there. And, you know, I can say from a personal perspective how powerful it's been for our business. Hannah, we get a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs listening to the show and we want to really make sure we're giving a realistic view of growing a startup. And I think we've done that today. Lots of honest appraisal of what it's like. What qualities do you think most early stage founders need to have in order to survive the madness that we've talked about? And is there any particular advice that you might have been given that, that's helped you kind of this second time around? In terms of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs, I think resilience and confidence. There is no reason why you cannot be the person to start the business that you want to start. And I think I have always had a little bit of an inferiority complex to people who might seem more confident or talk really good talk or just basically you know give the illusion that they are better than you and I think like to anyone who is thinking about starting a business if you really think there's a business in this and if you've done the work and you've got the data no one should know that plan more than you should and you can do it and I think believing in yourself is like one of the biggest things that you need as a founder and then the resilience to retain that as things get very difficult I think is the next thing so get it build some confidence and then have some resilience because it's going to be knocked out of you multiple times. So you're going to need to work out how to come back to that. And I think feeding into that, one of the pieces of, of advice that I always, 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 always come back to and still need to remind myself of regularly is that comparison is the thief of joy because it just feeds into everything. If you're comparing yourself to someone else's business or someone else's journey or their career trajectory, 
you're wasting energy. Focus on your own shit. Stay in your lane. Believe in yourself. And I think, you know, that energy is much, much better spent than on kind of comparing yourself to other people's perfect presentations on Instagram or something. Important advice. And I really hope anyone that is in the kind of early days of building something can take that on board because... Yeah, what you said there is, is something I wish I'd have heard uh, 10 years ago when I was starting out. It was a grind and I, I definitely almost wanted to chuck in the towel many times. Survived, but I tell you what, if I'd have had podcasts back then, I feel like I would have made half the mistakes or I was, would have felt like a co-founder. But no, thank you so much, Hannah. Like, I think you've done this twice now and I think you bring like, real honesty and vulnerability around what startup life entails but also some brilliant advice that I know everyone listening is going to really benefit from. You're also a working parent, like myself, a working mother, and my wife is uh, juggles running a business with motherhood, and I'm forever in awe of, of her, and I know it's not an easy job. Is there any advice you have for any founders that are listening to this that are juggling both a business and raising children? Because it's certainly not easy. The work baby is hard enough. So what's been your experience of that? And what advice would you have for anyone listening? I think the biggest or one of the biggest things I've learned is that actually kids affect people in so many different ways. And trying to have a one size fits all, this is what works is just like, again, a recipe for disaster, because there are people for whom, you know, they didn't really think that having a child would complete them and then it does and they don't ever want to go back to work again. So I think knowing that bringing a new tiny life into your life is going to probably be the biggest change that has ever happened to you and thinking, I actually don't know what's going to come next or how I'm going to react to this or what the solution is going to be is something that I would definitely have liked to hear before I had my daughter Alba. And then I think what has worked for me, and again, this might not work for everyone, but it's just I think I've gotten quite good at compartmentalizing and whether or not that is a mentally good thing to do a lot of the time, I'm not sure. But when I am at work, I actually don't think about Alba. I mean, I sometimes do, but very rarely. I think if I'm going to be where I am, I might as well be where I am and I might as well be present and I might as well give what I can give in this time. And if I'm trying to be half here and half thinking about Alba, no one's winning. And equally, when I do log off at the end of the day, and I tend to take from like five until seven, and then if I need to, I'll log back on afterwards. But those two hours, generally, I'm with Alba. And I try as much as possible to just be where I am then as well. And going that way is a lot harder, I think, actually, going you know, back into Alba world, having just done a day of work and trying to shake it all off very quickly and be completely present in the Play-Doh or the sand pit or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing in that moment. That's a harder transition. But yeah, trying to be where I am at the time that I am there is how I am currently trying to manage it. Oh, no, I think that's really admirable. And I think you're right. It's very easy to do a crap job at all things if you're trying to be here, there and everywhere. And actually, sometimes just being present in what you're doing in that moment, I think particularly with your children is, is so important and something that I've had to like, learn and work on actually, because I'm, even if I'm with Sienna at, at times in, in the last few years, there's definitely been stresses, things buzzing around my head, and I'm not really there. You know, we might be playing and chatting and reading, but then, oh, it's that whole daddy stop looking at your phone thing. And I think that hits you after a while where you're like, oh my God, like this really is a habit that I need to change. So 
sticking the phone in the other room and closing off the laptop and just just getting away from you know all that side of life is sometimes just just all you need to do and um, easier said than done though let's be honest much much easier thank you for, for for being so honest Hannah sadly we're at the end and we will definitely be doing a round two at some point but we will close off with our wrap-up question so in one sentence what do you think the future holds for mags creative i think the future for mags creative is about creating meaningful connections through brilliant stories told in audio and doing it with the absolute best humans around does that count as one sentence yeah that's a good one that's a very good one thank you and at the end of your career what do you want to be remembered for at the end of my life, I'd just like to be remembered for being kind. I think if I could be kind and be kind in business, I would feel like I was winning. I totally agree with that. And I think that whole thing about you having to be a, a bastard to win. It's rubbish. I hope it's changing. I really hope it's changing because I, yeah, I would be terrible if I had to try and be a bastard. Like I, I, it's the only, <laughs> I think just that you can be a nice person and still be successful and i think that's something that we really try to champion on this podcast and uh, i hope that will become the go-to rhetoric as opposed to the wolf of wall street sort of thing this is obviously the 40 minute mentor podcast so if you could be mentored by anybody dead or alive who would it be and why i think this is such a good question and i had about three thousand different options but i think i would like to be mentored by Brene brown because her TED Talk on vulnerability genuinely changed my life. And I think that her whole, firstly, I just love the way she delivers content. I think she's got her whole aura. She's so authentic. So I think being in the presence of someone who is who they are and like delivers stuff really, really well, and also has a background in research and data and can back stuff up with like, well, actually the data shows that X, Y, and Z. I think is the kind of perfect combination for me. So, Brene, it would be. Great answer. And I'd say it's right up there with my dream guest, actually. So if she's listening or anyone knows her. We'll put it out into the universe, James. I want a mentoring session and you want a podcast guest. Oh, wow. That'd be like the ultimate session. Like, we'll make that happen. We'll try to make that happen. Great. <laughs> I'm on board. Yes, yes. Finally, Hannah, what is your last piece of advice that can be career or life advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Comparison is a thief of joy. Just be you. You don't need to be anyone else. And you don't need to look at what other people are doing. Well, that is a perfect place to end it. Hannah, thank you so much. I love it when we have friends of JBM on the podcast. And, you know, I'm a, if, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast will know how much of a fan I am of yours in the business. Um, keep doing what you're doing. And thank you so much for sharing your story and wise mentorship with our listeners. We really appreciate it. Thank you, James. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Anna. I really hoped you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Hannah is such an inspiring founder and leader. So authentic, honest and down to earth. And I really admire the journey that her and Faith have been on as young and really driven entrepreneurs. Hannah's motives and insights into building a bootstrap business were particularly insightful and really resonated with me having been on a similar journey. And I'm sure there were many founders or future founders listening that really needed to hear some of her strong and very well articulated views on bootstrapping versus taking VC funding. Similarly, her take on trying to balance work and family life 
an always ongoing balancing act is something that I am constantly wrestling with, as I know many of you will too. I'd love to know your personal takeaways from this episode, so please leave a review with your favourite parts or simply drop us an email to info at jbmc.co.uk. I can't wait to hear from you and I hope you'll be back again next week when we're joined by another brilliant early stage founder. Before you go, please make sure you hit the subscribe button so you're the first to hear about next week's episode 